Although their opponents often exaggerated the party's commitment to violence and capacity for revolution, they were not wrong to see the Black Panther Party, with its anti-colonial analysis and vernacular wedded to local, national, international and transnational activism, as a threat to a US state deeply implicated in institutionalized white supremacy at home and abroad. I took that from the introduction to Sean Malloy's Out of Oakland, Black Panther Party Internationalism During the Cold War. Sean's book seems appropriate right now, not just because it explores the international aspects of the Panthers, but because engagement with international governments and movements just seems to be a constant theme at the moment. The ways in which the Black Panther Party used internationalism might surprise, though, which is why we're chatting with Sean today. Sean Malloy is Associate Professor of History, Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Merced. He's also the author, as I said, of Out of Oakland, Black Panther Party Internationalism During the Cold War. This is 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. Well, welcome, Sean. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, interest, well, I'm interested in a lot about your book, but there's so many things that jump out. Um, this idea of the, uh, the Black Panther Party uh, looking abroad um, is obviously mm-hmm. central to your book, but it's also incredibly fascinating. Why did they do that? Yeah, and I think you, you need to understand the Panthers' internationalism as occurring in a couple stages, right? And, you know, the, the, the question that first drew me to, to, to the subject was, how is it that this organization that starts with essentially two community college students in a decaying West Oakland neighborhood, how do they become national, international uh, figures? And it, a lot of it is that the Panthers uh, and their founders are drawing on this very long and rich history of black internationalism, um, that well predated the party. You could trace it back to the 19th century and, and the abolitionist movement or W.E. Du Bois and the Pan-African conferences. Um, and, and essentially, the, you know, the, the, the initial impetus for international engagement with the Panthers, as for many other these, these groups, is when you are an oppressed and persecuted minority inside a large and powerful country, um, and your goal is not simply to integrate, not simply to, to, to be treated just like everybody else, um, but to enact a kind of revolutionary change, if you're going to do that as in the minority, you're going to need help. You're going to need support. Um, and so there is this long tradition of, of black activists looking outside the borders of the United States um, for help. And I think more specifically to the context of the Panthers, there's this um, kind of revolutionary, you know, arguably the most important movement of the 20th century is the movement for decolonization, right? After World War II, you see all of these uh, nations in Africa and Asia gaining their independence, and that is inspirational to groups inside inside the United States who look at, at, at these formerly colonized nations, um, now speaking for themselves, and, and and say, hey, these these could be our allies. And um, Malcolm X is really a key figure there. He's a key figure for the Panthers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Malcolm X's key point is is that hey, you're a minority in the United States. But you're a majority people of color are a majority internationally, mm-hmm. and so that's really the, the the initial impetus is. And you know there are some more specific 
um, figures coming out of things like the Cuban and Algerian revolutions, folks like Frantz Fanon, who are you know, adding a kind of theoretical element to understanding how race and colonialism works. Um, but you know, at base, it, 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 it's the need for allies if you're going to seek a revolutionary change as a minority group. And then the, the, the emergence of a lot of these potential allies in the 1950s, and particularly in the 60s, in revolutionary governments in Cuba and Algeria and, and elsewhere, um, Vietnam, um, it, it, that first leads the Panthers to, to think about this need to, to hook up internationally. So, the, you know, we, we are now in what, what many of us, if not all of us, consider to be a you know, much more... Uh, global world, right? That we're we're sort of you know we think of ourselves as much more interconnected. Um, would that help that that the uh, Black Panther Party was looking for abroad? Would that do you think that's something that would be found more easily now with this kind of like global aspect of our society, or or less so perhaps? I mean, I get to know, right? And that, that the Panthers have had essentially two kinds of international engagement. They had transnational engagement, which is essentially just um, hooking up with individuals and groups internationally. And then they had international engagement, that is to say, engagement with other governments. And you know, where we are today in the 21st century, um, you know, transnational engagement is much, much easier. Right? Um, and you, know, you think about um, in, in 2014 when uh, the uprising is taking place in Ferguson uh, and the police use tear gas. Uh, well, there had just recently been an Israeli attack on Palestine, and Palestinian activists got on Twitter and started giving advice to activists in Ferguson on how to deal with tear gas, right? So that, that kind of person-to-person international engagement is a lot easier than it was in the days of Panthers. The flip side of that is that you know, the, the, a lot of the, glo- the, the kind of global village we enjoy today uh, is, in many results, is, is in many cases the result of a kind of triumphant neoliberal capitalism. Um, that successfully dismantled many of the revolutionary governments that the Panthers looked to for support in the 60s and 70s. So on the international level, if you were looking for a powerful state to ally with, as the Panthers did, right? they allied with China, with North Korea, with Vietnam, with Cuba, um, there are not a lot of revolutionary governments left in the world now, and the ones that are, you know, Cuba, Cuba and North Korea are still hanging in there, but they are not the shining beacons of revolutionary hope that they were in the 60s and 70s. Right, so yeah. The transnational environment is much more conducive. The international environment is much less supportive of that kind of revolutionary change than it was at the time the Panthers were around. Hmm. I mean, that's fascinating, it's the idea that uh, it was easier in some ways to deal with foreign governments uh, 40, 50 years ago than it was to deal with, with foreign individuals. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you mentioned in, in your answer just then, we were talking about uh, the use of Twitter. And, I, I, you know, as I was thinking about us talking, I was thinking, you know, what would the Panthers have done with social media? Uh, yeah. Anything you can speak to on that? Yeah, and I think in some ways the social media is a, is a very neat fit for the Panthers' tactics, right? Um, and in the Panthers' day, they didn't use social media. They used something called the Black Panther Party Intercommunal News. Uh, they used a newspaper, which they distributed weekly. And you know, the, the goal with that newspaper was to write something that would speak to people directly and immediately. And, and um, using what I call anti-colonial vernacular, which, you know, I'm going to put that would be, talk about complicated ideas about colonialism and capitalism and white supremacy in terms that everyday folks could understand. 
Um, and so, you know, whether that's using blunt phrases like off the pigs, or whether it's using um, the artwork of someone like uh, Emory Douglas or Therese Lewis, um, that kind of blunt, easily communicated message is in many ways very similar to the kind of things you see on things like Tumblr and Twitter, um, which those are things that encourage that kind of you know, blunt, quick hit, um, easy to understand message. And so, you know, that part of it, I think, is very congenial for the Panthers' way of thinking. There's one really important problem with social media, though. Uh, and if you look at one of the reasons the Panthers succeeded in getting their message out is they controlled not simply the editorial production of their newspaper. They controlled uh, the physical printing and the distribution. They controlled all of it because they understood people were going to try to stop that message from getting out. And in fact, the FBI did try to interfere with the distribution of the paper. Um, in contrast, you know, things like Twitter and Tumblr, these are, these are owned by large corporations. And... Um, Sometimes they are tolerant of particular messages, and sometimes there aren't. I mean, if you look at this perfect example on Twitter right now, that if you look on Twitter right now, you will find lots of actual goddamn Nazis on Twitter, many of them verified, right? They got the little, Richard Spencer is verified. Mm-hmm. You know, a little blue check mark next to his name. Um, and they are, Twitter is perfectly fine along the Nazis on Twitter. If I go on Twitter and I, and I write, fuck you, Richard Spencer, there's a good chance I'm going to get suspended. Yeah, uh, and and again, this this speaks to the problem uh, of of a medium which is not which is not controlled by activists, it's controlled by a large corporation that will act on whatever it sees as its best interests a lot. And it doesn't mean you can't you know activists are absolutely using Twitter, um, but I think the Panthers understood that that you know yes use 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 whatever platform you can get right, and the Panthers did that as well. They use the mainstream press. But if you don't control the means of distributing your, your, your message and your message is revolutionary, um, then you open yourself up to potential problems. And I think that's one potential downside to the reliance on social media is that you are relying on a, on a, on a medium that's not controlled by you. And it's not controlled by activists, it's controlled by corporations that are going to follow their own agenda. That, that's fascinating. I mean, it, it sounds as though in some ways, uh, really the Panthers learned way before the opportunity was even there for them to use it, uh, you know, sort of how to control the message, obviously. Uh, it's almost like they're, in many ways, there's, there's uh, lessons for groups nowadays to learn, even in a very different environment. And that just kind of leads me really down the, the path of, so what's the legacy now, you know, for, for the Panthers in terms of modern day uh, social justice movements? Yeah, I guess one of the things that I wrestled with in the book, and you know, I was writing, I was writing the book uh, while the Black Lives Matter movement was beginning to take off, um, and you know, I was thinking a lot about what what can be taken from the Panthers that was positive and negative, and uh, you know, I think that one one obvious and, and kind of generally applicable example that you can take from the Panthers' success is is the importance of combining. Um, sort of ideology or, or an intellectual approach to a particular problem um, with, a, with, with actual direct action, right? Um, that was one of the things that distinguished the Panthers from other groups at the time is you know, there were a lot of groups that had a similar message to the Panthers, but the Panthers were one of the few who took that message and then said, okay, well, we're going to go out in the street uh, and we're going we're to carry guns, which is legal, and we're going to follow cops. And that combination of having a coherent message an ideology, a program, they had a 10-point plan. If anyone said, what are you for? They said, we've got a 10-point program, read it. Um, so they had that intellectual component, and they, you know, they used the newspaper to spread that message, but they also had 
a, a direct activist component, whether that's feeding school kids or patrolling the pigs, as they called it. Um, so do, doing those two things, I think, it was absolutely critical. It's not enough just to have you know, a good analysis. It's not enough just to be good on Twitter. Um, you also need to be actively involved with the communities that you are trying to organize around, and that, that combination is absolutely critical. Um, the other, I think, more specific, another more specific lesson I would think uh, that that I think about a lot um, today is that the the Panthers were very clear that to confront white supremacy, to confront the history of, of race and racism in the United States, you also need to confront capitalism. Um, and in their analysis, and this is not an original analysis of Panthers, it's wrong on the work of others. Um, capitalism and white supremacy are born together, essentially. And this is a point that's now been borne out by scholars. And that, therefore, they need to die together. And you know, I think about this now when I look at Twitter, and I see on the one hand, um, you know, socialist activists saying, hey, class first, everything's class, forget about identity politics, forget about race, we need to organize on the class basis. And then on the other side, uh, you see folks saying, "Hey, you know, uh, let's just let's just let's be about race. Let's let's not think about let's not think about you know capitalism. Let's let's just think about you know what can we do as good for black people or brown people." Uh, and I think the, the the Panthers' message was you, you need to do both. That like you can't if you're interested in racial justice, if you're interested in economic justice, you have to be interested in both because historically those two systems arose together. And they have been intertwined in the history of this country in such a way that you really can't effectively combat capitalism without combating white supremacy, and you can't combat white supremacy without confronting capitalism. Ah, I, that is absolutely fascinating, Sean. I, I think hopefully, uh, hopefully, a lot of the groups who are out there um, today will listen to this because it—I mean, obviously, there's a lot of lessons they can take. So, uh, really appreciate you sharing with us today. That's been uh, it's been really interesting, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Martin. I really appreciate you having me on today. That was Sean Malloy, author of Out of Oakland: Black Panther Party Internationalism During the Cold War. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, you might also like the books we discuss. You can save thirty percent on your next order from our website by using code zero nine POD when you visit cornellpress.cornell.edu. You've been listening to eighteen sixty nine, the Cornell University Press podcast.